Hello and welcome to episode 164 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray in the driver's seat and attempting to digest the almost unthinkable amount of content that this game generates on a daily, weekly, monthly and yearly basis. And that is indeed our theme for today's episode, information and how it is both produced and consumed. In a moment, the former editorial director of the ABC, Alan Sunderland, will join us. But before that, let me bring in my co-host, Jimmy Emanuel. Jimmy, we're flying without Logue this week, but given that he's not working media like us, that's probably not a problem. He'd be useless in this conversation anyway. <laughs> yes. I, I, f- I feel bordering on useless in this conversation, so Logue would be truly useless. I'm feeling like a fifth wheel myself. <laughs> Enough of us. Let's get to today's topic. And it is a big one. Where do you choose to get your golf news from? Established sources like magazines and their websites, Facebook, podcasts like this one, anonymous or otherwise people on Twitter? Or do you engage in a broad cross-section? What do we mean in 2023 when we use the catch-all term, the media? Is it some or all of the above, or is it something completely different? Information might be the most important commodity in the world, and for all the technological change golf's undergone on the course, it's in the information space where most of the big impact changes have come. As I mentioned in the intro, we're privileged to be joined on this episode by a man who I think it's safe to say knows very little about golf, but certainly knows a lot about the media. Alan Sunderland's a broadcast journalist of more than 40 years' experience, author of several children's and adult books, a strong advocate for public journalism, and as I mentioned earlier was the editorial director of the ABC from 2013 to 2019. I'm job, I'm sure that wasn't without its controversies. Alan, welcome. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks very much. Thanks for the intro. You got it half right in that <laughs> I do know nothing about golf. Let's <laughs> go with that. I said very little in fairness. as <laughs> Nothing, but you'll fit right in. Let's start with the seemingly simplest yet perhaps most complex question. question. What or is it who is the media? Yeah, okay, so that's the next hour taken care of, no problem at all. <laughs> I'll just pop out and make a coffee and we'll come back. Look, and- I guess uh, here's the point I'd make about, about media. For a long time, we defined it by who paid for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were gatekeepers in the media because the internet didn't exist. And so if you wanted to be part of the media, you had to have a printing, printing press or a broadcasting license. And they, that, that kind of became by default the way we defined the media. If you had a job working for one of those people that were the gatekeepers, you were the media. Uh, now, of course, those days are gone because anybody, as we know, any fool can start a podcast. Mm. And so anybody <laughs> any group of anybody like can be out there. You know, you can have a website. You can it, it costs you next to nothing and it's proliferated. So it becomes a very difficult question. For a long time, we talked sneeringly about citizen journalists as not being real journalists. So, look, my answer to that question is a simple one, and that is that I'm, I've always been focused on the fundamental ethical principles of journalism, how you do the job. Journalism is not a job you have. It's a thing you do, regardless of who you do it for, how you pay for it. And so I've tried to, in my writings and in my um, work, define some fundamental principles of journalism around accuracy and diverse perspectives and impartiality and approaching issues in a journalistic way. So that my definition of journalism is if you are out there adhering to those ethical principles in the way you transfer Um, send information to the public. So you're not a spin doctor. You're not pushing someone else's cause. You're not pushing your own personal opinions. Trying to find out what's going on and tell people that is at the heart of good journalism. Are journalism and the media different? And have they always been different, but we just didn't recognise it? It feels like we used to think journos were the media. Look, the media is just one of those catch-all phrases that we throw around when we talk about the things that we consume. So really, you're watching a movie, you're listening to a TV show, you're watching Succession, you're watching a golf telecast, 
you're consuming media. So there is a specific section within media which goes to the way in which we tell people the news they need about the world they live in. And that is the news and information. And the reason it gets blurred is that there's an awful lot of stuff out on our airwaves and in print and online and in blogs and podcasts that are people telling you what they reckon, what they think, their view on the world. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. We like and enjoy and consume that. But when I talk about journalism, one of the reasons I called the recent book I wrote, The Ten Rules of Reporting, see how I slipped in an ad there, Mm -hmm. is that that I draw a distinction between reporting and journalism, let alone journalism in the media. So for me, reporting is seeking as as dispassionately as you can to find out what's going on and tell people and provide the context they need. And then that you can be a columnist, you can be a sports broadcaster, you can be a chat show host, and they all fit in the broad category of media and, and of journalism. But it's, it's handy to dig down and distinguish between what we're talking about. Do you need to have done the first to effectively do the second? Do you no. need to have been a reporter to be a good No, not at all. But, but it's interesting, you know, I've got a little section where I talk about opinion. And um, one of the great... Um, mistakes people make is to assume that if you're not a journo, I mean, Alan Jones famously said this and a couple of other shock jocks did, they're not journalists. You know, they're, they're commentators, they're, they're entertainers. If you are writing opinion, you don't have to have been a journalist. You don't have to adhere to those fundamental principles of accuracy. But the more you do, you better, the better your opinion is. So one of the biggest problems, one of the common things they say about opinion is you get your own opinion, you don't get your own facts. So a lot of opinion writers will twist the facts to suit their agenda. They'll misrepresent other people's views. They'll create straw men. So I've always thought that good opinion writers, uh, the more you are aware of those principles of journalism, then you overlay on that your own perspective. Here's what I make of all that. Hmm. But if you get all that wrong you're starting from a pretty shaky foundation. What's the relationship between that? Um, we see a lot more of that opinion stuff there because the gatekeepers are no longer there, aren't they? You used to find opinions in newspapers and Jones on radio and TV, mm. but there was very little of it. There are only a few people doing it. Now, of course, everybody can do it. What? How's that changed the relationship with how we consume media? Is that more where people get, do you think, their news from or their view of the world from than that reporting that you talked about earlier where it's about facts? It's a problem, and I think it's a problem. I think there's a reason. First of all, you need to understand why there is so much opinion out there these days. And there are well, everybody's two- got one, Alan. They're like bums. Exactly, <laughs> precisely. And to some extent, we like to read things that reinforce our own view of the world and, 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 and suit our – we don't like to be uncomfortable. We like to read things that reinforce our – so there is that tendency. There's no doubt about that. But opinion is cheap. It is cheap to make. It is cheap to produce. And the business model for journalism has largely collapsed around the world. The internet has made so much information, good and bad quality, free and easily accessible, that uh, people are losing money hand over fist. Newspapers are closing. Um, Budgets are being slashed. And if you don't have a lot of money and you're doing 24-hour-a-day content, which is really important these days too, let alone on-demand stuff, then you've got one or two paths you can head down. You can do the difficult, complex, uh, expend a lot of shoe leather and time and money to actually dig out what's really happening in the world. Or, um, or you can just sit at a microphone like we're doing right now and just tell people what you reckon. Yeah. So you can either send people on the ground into a dangerous situation like Gaza 
Or you can just say, I know what's going on in Gaza and let me spend half an hour giving you the benefit of my wisdom. And so it, it proliferates because it's cheap and it's superficially attractive and easily digestible. Mm-hmm. We're in a niche industry, Jimmy and I. I'll get your thoughts on this in a moment, Alan. What do you reckon that means for us, Jimmy? With what Alan's talked about there, which is broad, that's the media. Mm. We have our own media in golf. We've got two retail magazines right here in Australia, one of which we both work for. Mm. Uh, what does all that mean to you, what Alan's talked about there, do you reckon? As, particularly as a younger person coming in. Not young, younger. 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 Yeah. younger. <laughs> I'm looking at him, he's definitely these are, younger. These are facts, not opinion. You also missed in your intro of Alan that he's one of my oldest friends' dads. So, <laughs> but uh, I know where the body's yeah, are. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think exactly what Alan was talking about is probably even more blurred within the golf media because there's so few of us who do that job. So we are the news reporters, but also the columnists and everything else. So the one guy who someone might read some of their stuff and get the opinion that he's a newsman, and then they get another one that's a column, they just take his news which having been an editor of a website, it's difficult to try and differentiate it enough so that people can realise that and present it as a column. But also knowing how successful columns are. You write a weekly column. I used to write a weekly column. Those are highly successful in terms of clicks and engagement and everything like that because they emote within people something that you know drives them to comment or share it or whatever. Um, so it's even more blurred, I think, within our own little golf media world that's shrinking like the, like the broader media, but shrinking more and more. There's, there's only a handful of golf riders in, in the country and two of them are here. So, <laughs> so, you know, so that's right. We're probably not allowed to travel on the same planes like the Royal Family. Well, that's right. Like exactly. Sort of um, but yeah, I think, and I now obviously do a lot of work with the establishment of mm-hmm. golf organization as I'm well. In a moment too. That's a um, there's less and less people who are going out to cover golf events. And write the news. Because it's expensive. Because it's expensive. I mean, I was when I was with Golf Australia magazine and I was traveling around the Australasian tour, I was pretty much the only guy who mm-hmm. did the majority of events. It got me great access and it mm-hmm. built me up and um, allowed me to have the successes I've had. But it's a real shame because there's someone from the tour who's there to do the nuts and bolts. That's what they are required. That's perfect. But we miss a bit of the broader story, which is a shame, but it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing of you say, oh, we can't have the coverage and we can't have this without money, but we can't get more money if we don't have the coverage. So Yeah, that's circular argument. There's a bunch of stuff that Jimmy's raising there that I want to come to with you, Alan. Let's take the first one. How does being in a niche media industry change things, if at all? Well... A lot of journalists, you know, we used to call them rounds in my day. Mm-hmm. And so I spent my time as an industrial reporter, as a court reporter, as a political reporter, as a finance reporter, and they're all niche in some ways. Um, the fundamental issue for anybody doing this job is to understand who your audience is. I prefer to call them when it comes to journalism, particularly local journalism, who your community is, Mm -hmm. who you're talking to and why you're talking to. So you have to have clarity around your function. And so there's a whole lot of stuff, which I'm sure we can talk about later, about access and what it means and are you there to critically report on something or promote it and where do do those lines blur. But, But at its simplest... You need to understand the mechanics and the the finances, the, you know, the budget, you know, possibilities of the niche that you're reporting to. So are you bringing golf to a wider community? Are you writing for people who might have the most casual interest in it? Now, 
at the ABC, where I spent half my career, if you were a sports reporter there, then you didn't have a niche audience. Your audience was the Australian public. And so one of the things I, you know, I used to have to reinforce with people who were really embedded in particular sports is, you know, don't say Richmond played Carlton. Point out it's the AFL because it's cricket. You know, yeah. d- don't forget the basics. Now, you guys, in a sense, are, if you're writing for a golf magazine, a golf podcast, you have an informed, committed audience who's already bought what you're selling, the game of golf. Mm. So that changes the nature of what you are doing and the way you're doing it. But it also presents particular challenges because there'll be a lot of people in your audience who will be quite comfortable and happy in golf and hearing about golf and hearing about the the game who might not necessarily want to be hearing stuff that makes them feel a little bit uncomfortable about the nature of what's going on in the golf because let's face it, it's an industry as much yeah, as a sport. Mm. And that's a balance that I'm sure you struggle with on a regular basis anyway. We've seen that. With, for those outside Australia, I should be in the interest of the basics. The ABC is the Australian government broadcaster. It's a public broadcaster in Australia, not the government. Yes. Public broadcaster here in Australia. which Correct. is something not the, not the much bigger, shinier ABC in America. No, that's exactly <laughs> right. The t- two totally different uh, business models, quote unquote, if we could call it that. The other thing that, of course, comes with each Allen, and you touched on it, is industry. And particularly within industry, and I think golf, this is probably as heightened as anywhere. You have a bunch of people who spend the money that keeps the media afloat. So that relationship gets tricky, doesn't it? Mm. What is that? How do you manage that? Any thoughts on that? Because I think this is the area that people of Jimmy's age are going to have to navigate far more than I do, as what we see more and more is less of that established media and more of almost journos as their own brand as an individual. Yes, I think that's part of it. Um, but, you know, the old story of follow the money um, is a major issue. You know, now you'd be familiar, um, the Australian Football League here in Australia, there's a major issue down in Victoria where I came from originally because you'd have a number of media organisations covering the AFL. Huge business, massive, the single biggest footy code in that state. Mm. They're insane down there. Um uh, now, increasingly, the AFL, which is the commission that runs football, has had a bigger and bigger and bigger role in the media. They have moved towards setting up their own media outlet. They no longer needed to rely on Channel 7 or the ABC or Sportal to uh, to give them coverage. They generated their own coverage. They run the club's websites. They provide a so-called independent news service. Now, I know people who've worked for that. I've known journos who work for the AFL sports machine who will claim that they are nonetheless rigorously independent and they can criticise anything they like in the AFL will wear that. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that. But there is no doubt it's a problematic situation and it is only going to increase. So once you start being in that situation where the money, the funding is available via the organisations that are there primarily to promote the sport and to further the future of the sport – You're in a difficult situation as a journalist every time you want to do something that is perceived by the powers that be to be damaging that sport's name and reputation. Often it's just damaging the particular people who've stuffed it up already. (laughs) (laughs) But when you do that, you put you in a difficult situation. So it's great to say an individual journalist can build their own brand, but there's a price that's attached to that. And one of the biggest prices is a word that you mentioned, Jimmy, a while ago, which is access. One of the biggest weapons that media or that sports organisations have is is denying, withdrawing, or offering a level of access mm. to the game, and that often comes at a price 
or a dilemma around independence or at the very least perceived independence. And that to me is one of the single biggest struggles that every sports journalist who, who, who is passionate about their sport faces sooner or later. Is it a murkier world for Jimmy than it was for me? Only because there are more people, there were more people back then with fat wallets and deep pockets who were happy to have sports teams that travelled the world. And this is no different to journalism full stop across no, the board, yeah. you know, um, that there were days, I'm sure if you go back a generation, the number of people covering the tour yeah. would have been much greater. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I started in the press gallery in, in Canberra covering federal politics, there was one entire corridor of the press gallery, which was just for radio and wow. had all the commercial radio there. And it's called Radio Alley. We mm -hmm. called it. And when I started in the early 90s, it was chock full of radio people covering. Now, apart from ABC radio, I don't think there's anybody left. By the time I left the gallery, there was maybe one or two people doing it. You see that replicated around every part of our industry. Mm. And so the deep pockets and the fat wallets belong to the people who run the game. And it makes it very hard for the current generation of journalists to have the freedom and that comes with that level of independence, well-paid independence. Mm. Yeah. Are you working for state media, Jimmy, because you write for Golf Australia and the PGA? Well, that's the danger. The inference is that if the organisation in control of the sport is running their own media, then what you have is state media. Mm. How is that relationship managed internally? My primary job in terms of what I do for those organisations is to facilitate other media to cover the game. That is what I'm there for. Uh, at the end of the day's play, I'll also do a story to send it out. But at the bottom of that story, it's got my phone number and it says, call Jimmy if you want to, you know, you want anything. That's my primary role there. It's not to, you know, it's not to uh, make everything seem rosy and great about what's just happened. Um, yeah, that's my job there and is to, is to produce content so that people can then follow up. Whether they do is... That determines – now, that's a very different part of my job to being the guy showing up and looking for the story that was going to be interesting and potentially get me into trouble and lose my access, which has happened before. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's quite as as grim as it sounds <laughs> to a lot of people. Um, I am in a unique situation, of course, though, where I, I contract in and I do things like the TV and stuff like that, which is separate, and then I do this, which is just your and mine and Logue's thing. So I get a bit of freedom to do a few other things. But um, there's definitely rules and not rules, not stated rules. I've been surprised at how um, robust some of the conversations and stuff are. And uh, one of the reasons I believe that I was an attractive prospect to them was to bring that perspective in and help to get the other people internally to understand certain things. Martin Blake's the same. You know, Blakey was a great sports writer for a long time and he's been ensconced down there for years now. So, um, yeah, I don't think we're the state media necessarily. What's, well, yeah, although you and I would both probably agree that PGATour.com is a very different model, yes. similar kind of setup. What are the internal discussions like about media and media management? As journos, we have our thoughts, I think, on what goes on on the other side, quote unquote. Mm. What's it really like on the other side? Uh, it's interesting. Um, it's very, yeah, very open and, and clear and everyone shares their opinions about what's what and how to do things and how to best how to best get people to write and talk or you know do whatever about the game um yeah it's 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 there's a lot of willingness to try and engage with people and 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 help them or also educate them as well that's been a big thing for me is not necessarily 
traditional media or people you and I would consider media, but a lot of the other stuff, the the commentary and discussion on social media is is stuff that it gets my goat a little bit because a lot of it's ill-informed and I want to be a part of being spreading the actual correct information so that then people can make a judgment call. Not saying that they have to fall into line with what we do and what we say, but so that they're actually informed in those discussions. But like we said at the start, any anyone can start a podcast, anyone can start a Twitter account. And then if they have one or two things that people like, suddenly it climbs and climbs and they've got an area of importance and some people become a, attached to the notifications on their phone telling them they got likes going, so they just start going with anything. Uh, I think in the golf media space, that has been the biggest change in the last two years with Live, yeah. where Live Golf comes in. Look, some of those I can tell you, some of those from this is pre what I do now when I was in the magazine, some of those accounts, they're getting tournament access and everything like that, you know, with a helping hand. And then they go and they just talk and talk and talk and talk. And then eventually people sort of lose interest because it's the same thing again and again and again, because they're not covering the game. They're not covering every part of the game. They're just talking about one element and people go, oh yeah, we've heard it all before. Um, I think, I think even traditional media slipped down that rabbit hole with live golf and that columnists every single week were writing the same thing. So it's the perfect storm. Live golf, isn't it, Alan? You've got the celebrity of Norman. Mm. You've got the money of oil money of the Saudis. You've got the evil empire of the Saudis. You throw all of that into a journo's computer, and he's going to come up with a great story. Yeah, I think that's right. I, the, I'll tell you the thing I found most fascinating about that. I, I always thought from the start that there were two issues really deeply intertwined when it came to live golf. And let me say at the outset, I'm no expert on this, but. The the dominant story was the understandable story, which was Saudi sports washing. Mm-hmm. Why are we going to let this mob come in with a terrible human rights record that knocked off Khashoggi and et cetera, et cetera, and they're going to come into this sport and everybody was up in high dudgeon saying this is terrible. We cannot allow this to happen. And it's part of a pattern. You know, you look at the, you know, Ronaldo and Messi and you look at everything that Saudis, you know, have been in Formula One and Newcastle Football Club. There's a whole tradition of the Saudis doing this and being quite open about it, that it is reputation rehabilitation. But at the same time, there was a second story going on, which was like World Series cricket, which was like the establishment, the PGA, defending itself against an interloper who wanted to come in with deep pockets and change the sport and take it away from the people who controlled it. What I found fascinating was that there wasn't enough focus on that second aspect because the PGA allied themselves, put themselves on the side of the angels and said, we can't have Mm. this Saudi sports washing, this horrible regime throwing its weight around. They brought up 9-11. And people, yes, exactly. And people absolutely jumped in, a lot of golfers and a lot of riders. You know, look at what Peter Simons was writing at the time, one of our, you know, very senior sports writers. Hates Greg Norman, by the way, so it was a great fodder. But they went in very big on that. (laughs) Mm. And then, of course, (laughs) inconveniently... (laughs) PJ and Give and, and Liv did a deal. And suddenly PJ's position was they weren't talking about Saudi. The money's still there. The issues are still there. But they were no longer talking about it because peace had broken out. And it kind of left those golfers in particular and writers who'd gone all in on the side of PGA against the evil empire, they left them with nowhere to go. And and that's a fascinating – for me, that was always a fascinating thing that that – Ideally, what a lot of writers would have been writing about to some extent, and I'm sure some of them did, was the extent to which PGA was 
arguably cynically aligning themselves with the side of the angels on sports mm. washing mm. suited them and then walking away when it no longer suited them. And that just goes into that murky nature of the fact that what you guys are covering is a multi-billion dollar mm. industry. And there's all sorts of challenges around that. For the average punter out there, they probably just want to hear about the nature of the game they love. And there are decisions to be made about the extent to which you are critically reporting on uh, an industry with all of the commercialized aspects around that, or whether you are basically ultimately there to make the game healthy and make the game popular and make the game good. Which should it be? Well, it's it's a dilemma that affects every journalist in every area. I don't want to suggest it's only affects sports journos, but it is a particular problem for sports journos in my view. Because if you are a serious journalist and you value your independence and your impartiality, then you're going to call the chips. You're going to call it the way you see it. And when there are uncomfortable, difficult issues, you can be a, a love in love with sport, love with golf or whatever, but you will not hesitate to cover issues which may well in the short term damage the sport and its reputation because they're there to be covered and it's a warts and all without fear or favour. That's the nature of journalism. Um but the problems, the pressures that journalists face uh, are, are the, the loss of access, the loss of credibility, the loss of support, the loss of audience, and the loss of money and finance. And so these become difficult factors. And you don't have to just look at um, golf. You can look at the way the whole Lance Armstrong, Lance Armstrong thing played out. I'll try and pronounce his name correctly. <laughs> Sorry, I got you wrong. So we won all. Um, so, you know, the, the, that, that idea that, that – you know, at the time when one or two journalists were pushing away on Lance Armstrong and the evidence they were seeing, they were outcasts within mm. their own profession, let alone the sport, for a long, long time. There were a whole lot of, of cycling journos who were happy to leap on this one or two, you know, reprobates in the UK mm. who were raising these uncomfortable things with no evidence Um telling themselves they were being independent. The reality was when the, the whole story emerged, it was pretty awful and and it went on for so long because there's a lot of people in sports journalism who at the end of the day feel their loyalty is to be a bit of a rah-rah supporter for the sport mm. rather than pick up that nasty bit of dog-eared carpet and see what's under it. I think so often it's hard. I've had difficult conversations with people when I've written something critical of something about golf and had a difficult conversation with someone who takes it personally or or doesn't understand why I would do it because, you know, there's a big effort to put a tournament on or whatever it is. You're talking the game down is what you get told. Huggy gets that, I get that. Yeah, Huggy gets that a lot. You and I have got that. My thing has always been trying to make these people understand that I do it because I love golf and I want golf to be better and it can only be better if its failures or mistakes are realised. They're also newsworthy, so they also need to be – so there's been a really difficult – transition for people now I think in in my age of understanding what what a journalist's job is and then melding the fact of being friendly with the other people you travel around Australia or the world with at these events who don't have that sort of a job um, I think one of the greatest examples I've seen of that is a guy who passed away last week Patrick Smith mm-hmm. now Patrick Smith was the most could be the most scathing and biting columnist but he loved those sports he wrote about mm-hmm. He adored golf and he mm. tore it to shreds a couple of times I saw in media centres and it was because he cared and because it was there. Um, and getting people to understand that's the purpose, it's not just, you know, it's not to talk down the sport is very, very difficult. 
Um, and I don't know if that's the journo's job or if that's, you know, where that falls to try and educate that that's how people are working towards that. And I think that's the same with those cycling journos as well. And I think the point I'd make too is it's very easy for me. I spent my life in public broadcasting. The good people of Australia paid my salary. It's pretty safe, isn't it? And, and I had, uh, and, and despite everyone, you know, jumping on us being left-wing troublemakers or, you know, government controlled because they paid our money. Woke, the independence woke, of the ABC is, yes, at the same time often. Um, <laughs> The statutory independence of the ABC gave us a lot of wriggle room. And it's easy for me to be a purist in this area. Mm-hmm. But but I, it's important to say that we all live in a world of compromise, okay? It doesn't matter who you are. You are going to find it difficult at times to be reporting things that are potentially in conflict with the people who pay your salary, okay? Mm-hmm. So if you are working for a golf organisation, if you're working for AFL.com, then there can be some great journalism. And depending on the on the relationship they set up, some organisations are very good at, at saying to its people, listen, you want to have a go at us, have a go at us. That's what we're paying you for. But there will be perception issues and real issues around it. But everyone faces them. When I was at the ABC, we had a cancer cluster in one of our buildings in Brisbane. Oh, I remember this, yeah. And we had to evacuate the building and people were getting sick and dying and nobody knew why. I can't tell you the amount of internal pressure within the ABC and scrutiny over how we were reporting How that. to report it, that's right. And, and when any organisation has to report on itself, mm-hmm. and I'm talking media organisations that are rigorously independent, there are tensions and pressures and difficulties. And at times I would have people inside ABC management saying to me, that, that program is doing a story saying the new building we're planning to move to is not very environmentally sound and it has sick building sy- syndrome. Do you know how stressed our reporters are? Do you know how ter- and irresponsible it is? It's not true and you should not be casting doubt on the new building when we're moving out of a cancer-riddled old building. And my response to that was to say, well, talk to the journo. Tell him your view. He's going to report it mm. the way he sees it. If it's wrong, then tell him where the facts are wrong. But otherwise, we're not going to interfere in reporting about ourselves, even if it's damaging for ourselves. On the other hand of that, you don't necessarily – look to Channel 9 to do the best reporting on scandals inside Channel 9 or Channel you know, 10 or The Age to do the best reporting on problems within The Age because people perceive them as being too close, too biased, too problematic. So every journalist faces the, the challenge of confronting those pressures and all you can really do, whether you're doing stuff for the establishment, doing stuff for an independent podcast, is manage them as best you can and be open about disclosing and dealing with potential mm. conflicts. Because sometimes, even if there is no conflict, there is a perception in your audience of conflict. You put it out there, you say, listen, judge me for my performance. These are the pressures. This is what I'm doing. Mm. And there will be times where those conflicts are too great and yeah. you have to walk away from them. But, yeah, but it's important not to say that there are good guys and bad guys and if you take anybody's money, you're in trouble. We all take somebody's money. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We talk a lot on this podcast about the image of golf being problematic outside the game. Non-golfers' view of the game is very different to those of us within the game. And we've got media problems in as much as we have our own media. So golfers spend a lot of time talking to each other and not so much to people outside the game. The image of journalists in particular and the media generally, the mainstream media, I think, is probably not great either, Alan. I think the many in the public see us as a bunch of, you know, lined up with our snouts in the trough. How important is that How and how important is it to overcome that? And how can people who consume media rather than work in it, we've all had the advantage in this instance of working in the media and seeing how it works. For those listeners who haven't done, 
what do you sort of look for and how, how do you deal with that as an issue? How do you figure out who to trust? Yeah, well, of course, the best thing anybody out there can do is buy and read my book, The Ten Rules of Reporting. That goes without saying. Link in the show notes. Yeah. Invoice in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, the deal I did when I wrote it is I don't get a dollar from any future sales. So there's there's no personal interest in this at all. But no, seriously, one of the the reasons I wrote the book um, and one of the reasons I've spent a few years now towards the end of my career, uh, because you listeners out there can't see how old and haggard I am, is because – the currency of successful journalism used to be financial. You know, you see how healthy your budget was and it didn't really matter about anything else. With the change in the industry and the collapse of business roles, increasingly um, journalists are coming to realise and people who employ journalists are coming to realise that the single biggest currency is trust and how you earn and, and gain that trust. And my view is that the only way that you are going to start to build and establish trust, because you're right, journos are somewhere around real estate and used car sales and lawyers and politicians. Politicians. Um, <laughs> Podcasts are slightly yeah, higher, I believe. Much higher calling. Um, the only way you're going to start to turn that around is to establish a relationship with your community, with your audience, where you're transparent about the methodology and you're accountable to that methodology. So it's the ethics, really boring, nerdy, unpopular word that's going to drive the success in the future of, of um, journalism. And that's not just me saying it. If you look at the – there's a, a report that comes out every year out of, out of the Reuters Institute in Oxford that looks at media trust and it breaks it down by countries and nations. In Australia, still the most trusted media are the public broadcasters, SBS and the ABC. And I think they are most trusted despite campaigning against them because they are so clearly and uh, committed to a set of standards and because the Australian public feels like they own them, because they do. The next level down, before you get to commercial TV or anything else, is local and regional. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a reason for that. There's a lot of crappy journalism going on in local and regional, mm-hmm. just as there is anywhere else. But local and regional are really connected to their community. Mm-hmm. Okay, they're quite often, you know the person. You know the journal. Yeah. You've seen them in your community. You've seen the stuff and they cover nuts and bolts, bread and butter issue. So the future of good journalism, if we know anything from that, it's the, it's the relationship you have with your community, with your audience and the extent to which you are open, transparent, engaged, connected and that it becomes a two-way. It's much easier now for us to know what people want and think is important. You don't have to wait till someone writes a letter to the editor. You get instant reaction mm-hmm. and you get to know what is happening, what's going on. And I used to find as a journal, particularly in the latter part of my career, you'd work for, I can remember working for, you know, weeks on a half hour story about a particular issue in our prisons. And I did the story and I gathered together what I could really hard to get some case studies and I put it to air and the week following, I had 10 new leads from people responding to the story saying, hey, I know about this, I know about that. By then, of course, I'd put my half-hour story to where and it was too late to do anything else. Mm-hmm. We can do iterative journalism now, iterative reporting, where we are in a, a partnership with the community, where we're saying, here's my story, here's what I found out about this issue, here's what's happening. If you know anything, let me know. Next week, I'll come back and say, hey, listen, we've had some great new leads. That's the nature of, of, of journalism these days. So we can turn technology to our advantage to build that trusted, engaged relationship with the public. Because at the end of the day, if journalism is doing anything, of course it's trying to make a buck. Of course it's trying to promote the nature of golf or whatever else, or democracy, whatever it is you happen to think is your shtick. Old-fashioned ideas, exactly. democracy. <laughs> but at its heart, or well, the stock market, but <laughs> at its heart, 
It is trying to deliver an actual public good to people. And if you can't make that connection in people's minds, there's a reason why um, a lot of journalism um, went through a little peak of audience in the lockdowns and COVID. Because people genuinely, they wanted to know, where's my 5K limit? Remember these wonderful Mm, days? mm. Where can I buy toilet paper? Who's got rat tests? How long are the queues for me to get tested? And and where's the vaccine available? And they suddenly understood the value of direct, relevant, trusted, impartial information. I don't want the government telling me what I can do. I want one of these journalists telling me, "Don't, don't believe that because the lines around the block go there instead. And so it's those fundamental ways to prove your worth and value and your credibility that's going to determine the future. And that will be the difference between well-informed, factual, accurate uh, journalism and some bloke on, on who's just having a bit of a whinge. It's always struck me that reporting, probably more so than journalism, is much more like a trade than a than what I think a lot of journos think of themselves as is some sort of academics or, yeah. or it's much more like carpentry or electricity. There are there are steps to follow to ascertain the facts and then to present the facts. You take the simple idea of a car accident. It's a who, what, when, where, how, why, what mm. time, what street, what happened, who died, and that sort of thing. That's really changed in the world as we see it at the moment. What's potentially the future for journalism and journalists, though, Alan? It must be a cause of concern. I feel like, I wonder whether the utopia is more like the cafe industry. Loads of people like Jimmy and I have a little corner of the media world. We've had some training. We're not just throwing out opinions. We're, we've got something to back that up. We've done our apprenticeship. Mm. And that you'll only have live sport will be the Gloria Jeans and the Starbucks. There'll be a couple of those, but that's how most people will perhaps access media. Am I kidding myself with that? What do you see as the future? Because we know that newspapers have always been the one place to turn out journals. TV and radio never have. Magazines to a much lesser extent. Daily newspapers is where proper journos, for want of a better term, who understand this stuff, are born, and then they go on and out into the rest of that world. You have to wonder in a world where newspapers are disappearing who where that responsibility falls and where that next generation of journos is going to come from and who's going to teach them. Yeah, well, as again, you read my book and everything's fine. <laughs> um, but it was, look, again, look... I grew up in a different tradition, the ABC tradition, and again, similar to newspapers, I agree with you. I'd add the ABC into that mix because I did my yep. cadetship. Um, you were taught, you were taught a whole range of things from shorthand through to mm. ethics of journalism, and you came out that end. And, and a lot of you, a lot of people, then disappeared into commercial radio. I was, I was too ugly for that. But um, <laughs> too ugly for radio? That's well, serious. Yeah, well, no, for commercial TV, <laughs> radio. Well, I had a had a bit of a lisp. So what are you going to do? <laughs> um, look, you're right about one thing that it is. I, I often say that when I used to do my journalism training, particularly on issues like impartiality, this idea that people criticise it, saying journos are not, you know, they're, they're, of course they're subjective. We all are. Who are you kidding? I used to say good journalism, that rigorous independent journalism, it's not a state of being like sainthood. It's a discipline. Mm. It's something you do and it's always flawed and it's always – and you're trying to set aside your own prejudices and the views of others and do as, as fair a job. And so first of all, yes, it is a discipline. Um, but the big problem we face is that it is really difficult to build a sustainable business mm. if you set up your little corner shop. And for people who are just confronted with 
a device in their hand where it doesn't matter whether your window into the world is a Google search or scrolling Facebook or X or threads or whatever it happens to be, you're going to be out there wandering around with no roadmap. And so whenever the big news happens, you will still see a flight back to the mainstream predictable mastheads that people know. They'll go to ABC, to news.com, to New York Times, to The Guardian, to the BBC, because they know and trust there's still residual trust. If they want to know what is actually really happening, they'll be searching out those authoritative sites. It's very difficult for the little guy, uh, not just to make a buck, but for people when they come across it to assess it. What is this thing? And so a lot of what's been happening in, in media now for probably 20 years, certainly 10 or 15 has been attempts to create the equivalent of a kind of a heart foundation tick of approval or a three-star, you know, what is it that we can hold up to say, this is how you know that the, this site is actually attempting to practice this kind of work. So the, I think the principles of good transfer of information have never changed. I'm a traditionalist. I'm old-fashioned. I think you go back to those fundamental, funnily enough, there are exactly 10 of them, um, <laughs> principles of journalism of reporting, and they remain important. What's difficult is to know whether people are doing that. If you're listening to a podcast or reading a 10-part story, how do you know how much rigor has gone into the, the gathering of it? And to some extent, it's easier for us now to show our workings. You know, if you're doing a radio story, when I was in ABC Radio, four paragraphs, mm. four sentences. Mm. That's your yarn, yeah. right? Not a lot of room to show your workings. These days, it is much easier to at the bottom say, this is what I did, this is who I spoke to, here's my, here's my kind of showing your workings. Um, but also it's about um, saying to people that, uh, you know, I'm signed up to this. So, for example, the organ- one of the organisations I'm involved in is called Local Independent News Association, LENA. We've gathered together, we've currently got about 60 and growing little one-man band news operations, most of them, around the country. They sprung up when the local newspaper was nothing but real estate ads and there's nothing left. They're the only ones going to local council meetings. They're the only ones going covering what's happening in your community. The first thing we did when we set up this organisation was said, here's a set of editorial standards. We're going to put them on our website. You're a member of Lena. You sign up to it. So these small organisations, the Beagle and the, you know, in the Cove, in Lane Cove, they say, here's our standards. And they're on their website and they say, this is our calling card. And so if you are setting up that, you know, corner shop, and a lot of them are doing it, living on the smell of an oily rag, one man, two man operations, women a lot, then you've, it's really important to have some sort of structure that says we're part of this so you can be assured that we're engaged in trying to find information that you're going to find useful and reliable. And that ethical basis coupled with a real good understanding of who you're serving and what they are actually interested in are the two things that are going to make good information survive. It's almost like that professional uh, endorsement, isn't it? GPs yeah. are members of it, yeah. mechanics are members of yeah, You don't have to have ever gone and worked, yeah. for, you don't have to have done a cadetship. No. One of the things I'm trying to demystify is, yeah, I've never done a, I've never done a journalism degree. I did no. a journalism yeah. in philosophy and history. What use is that? Mm-hmm. Um, I learnt my craft, mm. and that's what it is. I learnt my craft in a practical way, Doing the job. and the rules of it are very, very simple. Anybody can do it if they just understand those key principles. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the same in terms of I didn't do a degree. I didn't go to university. I thought I was going to play golf for a living. 
So well, I had a degree. You learned yeah, one lesson. Yeah, I learned a lesson pretty quickly there. <laughs> but I was around golf and I was around media and golf media and sport media a lot. And all my friends, funnily enough, all somehow work in media now. But I then got into doing this and I my experience of the rules that Alan talks about and everything was through guys like yourself and John Huggin and all this sort of stuff who, for whatever reason, decided I was all right and that they'd teach me a few things along the way. And looking at what Alan's talking about and listening, well, it's exactly what I was taught by these guys, not by sitting down and saying, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, but giving feedback and having the discussions. I wonder where that comes for people younger than me. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to golf tournaments. It's a specific niche area, but I was fortunate enough to go to golf tournaments where those people were there and they were accessible to me. Um, if those people aren't around, you know, how do you learn that if you if you do go to and do a journalism degree or if you do somehow end up writing about golf. Um, I also worry that a lot of the people who get into what we do, particularly in this in this sort of uh, podcast, plug it into your laptop and away you go. They're not interested in learning from other people. No. And that's the biggest concern, that, you know, learning from other people is so, so valuable in terms of your craft and everything like that, that a lot of the people I see come into golf media have a, well, we've already got a little bit of a following, so we already know what we're doing. And they have success, but they don't have something like that that guides them, that then it can become problematic down the road or um, it just, it, it makes it even more difficult for themselves, I would say. I should say this, there's also a, a, a quite a damaging, I think, and false, ultimately false debate going on within journalism itself. And I'm talking about the journalism academics, the industry, the young generation of journos. Um, there is this argument out there that says, let's do away with this old-fashioned notice, not, you know, concept of journalistic objectivity because we know we all have opinions. We know we're all hopelessly subjective. So instead of pretending that you know that this sort of view from nowhere where you are just God and it's true because you're saying it, that kind of mantle that journalists assume of being objective, forget that fiction. Let's acknowledge we all have our own perspectives and just be transparent about that. And so let a thousand flowers bloom and we can all be transparent about it. Now, first of all, that's, to me, that's a good definition of a spin doctor. Um, but secondly, when you actually question and interrogate that view, the problem actually disappears. So I've had a lot of debates with people who say objectivity is dead, forget impartiality. And I'll say to them, okay, but you believe in being accurate, yes. You believe in seeking out facts, yes. You believe in chasing down facts even if they're inconvenient and you don't particularly like it, but you follow the truth where it leads you, yes. And you believe in properly and fairly representing the perspectives of others and not setting up straw men, yes. Okay, well, then we have no argument. What the hell are you talking about? If you want to then add your personal opinion at the end of it, as long as you tell people this is my opinion but here are all the facts Led me to it. So let's get back to what we actually all agree on, which is that fundamental discipline of trying to be fair income and saying, look, this is an uncomfortable fact, but I'm not going to pretend it doesn't exist because it's not part of my worldview. So there is a, ultimately there is a fundamental difference between someone who is serving their own view of the world and being an advocate or an activist for it and somebody who is attempting to dispassionately serve the public and tell them what's going on. And we should never lose sight of that. Um, but at the moment, it's kind of a bit unfashionable to talk about that discipline because it's hard work. Mm. It is hard work, and if you give people, it's not perfect either, is it? No, of course, you can it never isn't. be right. You can never, you can get, never get, it, get it right. No, and so I, when I talk about, for example, a good newsroom, you know, if you're running a program, a good newsroom will have a diversity of people. 
they'll have people who are conservative and liberal and Labor supporters and who come from different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, not because we want each one of those to have an opportunity to air their particular prejudices and blind spots to the world in turn, but because we want that collective group to expose and eliminate each other's blind spots, to call out the assumptions and the comfortable, you know, traditions of, you know, old white bloke journalism. And so so diversity in service of impartiality, transparency in service of that fundamental role of trying to be fair income about it is what we have to get back to. That's a difficult thing to achieve when the newsroom is disappearing, isn't it? Which is the problem we're confronting with. Yeah. The, the media is fracturing. You're not going to have a newsroom where you could have that utopia. No. And so the answer for that, if you are a one-man band, if you're a one-woman operation, you cannot seek diversity within a well-staffed newsroom with good structures and policies and systems. So you get the fundamentals right and you engage with the community and the community will keep you honest. The audience will keep you honest. The people that you are, because it is much more of a two-way communication. So if you're out there, you might think you know what people are interested in in the world of golf, but the more time you spend engaging not just with the, the people who run the golfing industry, but the people who are out there, you know, hitting balls into the rough every day, um, you'll start to get a sense of what it is that matters most to them. You know, there's a big debate in in our area of Lane Cove at the moment about you know a, a redevelopment that's going to you know affect the golf. You know, and there was a you know, take half the one of Sydney's major golf courses away for some other development. Getting an understanding of what matters to people and what people are interested in, how important those factors are, how much does it cost to play golf, where do you get your gear from, what all of that sort of stuff means that you are. That, that is the substitute for a good, diverse, interesting bunch of people is the engagement with your community. I think, yeah, I think around Moore Park, we know particularly the coverage stuff and, and this has been the unique one of being on the other side and, and been trying to manage that. That impartiality is, I think, Rod, you would believe lacking in a lot of the coverage oh, of things. By far. Most of it, in fairness, most of the coverage has been opinion. Golf's not, the Moore Park thing's not really seen as news, I don't think, particularly no. by the Herald. The, the, mm. the It's seen as great opinion fodder. And golf's an easy target and they need to sell newspapers and that's what it's been about. And I mean, it doesn't take much to pull it apart. But no, you're right. But it hasn't been so much in the news pages, I don't think. No. It's been far more, there's been a, a concerted effort of opinion writing. And I, this is the area where I think the opinion writing is not necessarily presented as so. It's it's presented as just here's a story and it's not necessarily done that way. And exactly what Alan's spoken about of trying to outline the facts and then colour your opinion around that is what's been missing from a lot of those things. Like, if, for example, in Moore Park, I've read everything that's been there. The intentional uh, leaving of the word public golf course mm-hmm. out. So it's always just golf course. It's, it's never public golf course. You know, I know I've done a lot of the background work on it. It's, it's how busy it is and its numbers. And we provide those numbers. There's never those numbers included. It's the numbers of the residents surrounding and everything like that. So that people can make an informed look at it and, and understand that opinion. Um, I understand everyone doesn't like golf and I understand people think there's a better use for that land. That's okay. Um, but yeah, there's not been the facts presented in those things and that, and that public that word public is so crucial in the broader mainstream discussion around golf that is left intentionally because... That and green space is the other And green space, yeah. Golf courses are green space, people. 
Yeah, but don't look at them. Yeah, you've, you've pinpointed one of the fundamental flaws of bad journalism. Um, and that's why, like, 90% of journalism is accuracy and context. Hmm. You can argue about bias, and mm-hmm. but, but 90% of it is if you get accuracy and context right, then it's very difficult to go too far wrong. So what you're talking about there is a lack of context. Yeah. Okay, so you can choose to say, look how many golf courses are in this part of Sydney, and now they're planning to take away half of one, who cares? But what's missing the context? Well, how many of those are very expensive private courses? How many of those are public courses? How much other green space is there? How much development is there? It's the more you add in context. And so one of the things I spend a lot of time talking about with with journos is you need to – the selection of the facts that are material to this story is crucial. Mm -hmm. So there are two ways you can sin against the rule of accuracy. One is getting information that you put into your story wrong. And the other is leaving out information which should be in the story. Those are the two things. And it keeps coming back to that fundamental thing that at the end of the day, this is a simple discipline. And the challenge is if you come up through an established media organization 20, 30 years ago, the expectation is you learn that craft. Mm. You learn that discipline from the old bloke next to you and the the people beside you. That was a good system, Alan, I think. Yeah, and if you come in, of course, and if you come in – alone because it's so easy now with no gatekeepers to get into the business, gatekeepers, um, where do you learn that from? You know, and of course you learn it from my book. But other than that, <laughs> where do you go to get that sense of the it, – it's a very important yeah, duty. Absolutely. And there's a discipline around it which you ignore at your peril and it leaves people with incomplete misinformation and disinformation which we are awash with. Mm. That was going to be the next thing I was going to ask you. It was misinformation and disinformation. First of all, the difference between the two. One is deliberate and one is yeah, less. Disinformation is deliberate. Disinformation is I'm going to attempt to, yeah. to hoodwink you mm. by deliberately and in a calculated way. Yeah. Um, and there's only one there's only one justification for disinformation, and it, which is often forgotten, and that's satire, parody. Yeah. Um, and provided people understand it's parody, there's some fantastic stuff out there. Um, uh, but misinformation is ignorant, incomplete, you know, we don't know, let's assume it was accidental, they've just done a sloppy job, and they are both problems, and in a way, to some extent, misinformation is a bigger problem, because it just speaks to a general loss of yeah. skills and time and, and rigour. forgivable in yeah, some well, way. Yeah, well, and it's understandable, but it's also more damaging, because yeah. there's so much of it around. Mm. Disinformation, you can, pers- you can pursue and pin down and out people, um, but... Um, both of them are a problem, and and for the average consumer out there who just wants to get a sense of what's going on, it can be very challenging, and there is no easy answer. Otherwise, we wouldn't be spending all this time no, talking about true. it. Misinformation is like breaching a rule of golf. Disinformation is blatantly cheating. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody breaks the rules of golf at some point, but that yeah. doesn't mean they're cheating. It's yeah. like the an unintentional little mistake yeah. as opposed to kicking the thing and not telling anyone yeah. about it. <laughs> Brushing the sand away or whatever. The, whatever it may be. Whatever it may be that you're talking yeah. about. Whatever the infraction may be. What do you see for your future, Jimmy? We'll wrap it up in a second. What do you see for your future? Because you're in this unusual space, I think. Unusual uh, time, perhaps. Well, yeah, I don't know. I've never been much of a planner. That's how I ended up a golf <laughs> journo after, <laughs> after, yeah. after trying to play golf for a living. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I really enjoy what I do. Um, I love what I do. I love, and I love that the fact that I now get to work across all different mediums as well. I'm in the last week. I 
was at a tournament where I was doing the social media stuff for the tournament. I was writing the end of day story and then I was doing on course commentary, all which are completely different roles and completely different ways of informing and completely different audiences. And then I went and spoke with you on a podcast a day later. I'm, I'm trying all these different things and I really enjoy it. Um, opportunities are probably less in some ways that you know I, I love writing and i love writing about the game of golf I, i'd like to write about some other stuff as well but i love writing but there's probably less and less opportunities for that which is looking into the future probably a slightly disappointing element to it but um yeah i'm not sure uh, a lot of people end up doing what i and i'm currently doing which is moving into the sort of com side of things and you do stuff that is engaging and exciting and worthwhile work but it's not putting your name to a story and putting it out there which is a thrilling thing i think still you know i've been doing it for a while and you've been doing it for a lot longer there's still a certain thrill to writing something and proudly putting your name on it yeah it's the facebook comments and the i hate rob Morrie and yeah. all of that sort of <laughs> stuff is why you do it yeah, that's right is jimmy having trouble seeing his future alan because he doesn't have one no, I'm a I'm an optimist in this space. I've always been optimistic in this space, and and that's for one reason only. the The demand from the public for good, reliable information that they can trust about things that matter will never go away. It is as great, if not greater, now than it has ever been. That has not gone. The fundamental task which needs to be done is as important now as it's ever been. We are going through a difficult and challenging time to build good business models around it. We are in transition in building good business models around it. But anyone who thinks that all they're ever going to need for information about golf comes from the official PGA website, that's never going to happen, right? And so the demand for information will be there. The role will be there. The need to have a craft and a discipline of delivering it will always be there. And over time, what will emerge from this huge period of transition that we're currently going through will be sustainable business ways and mixtures of ways, publicly and privately and community, of funding this need because it's a need that will always have to be met. The market will answer all of it our prayers. It will sort itself. Well, market and or government. You know, we have ways of delivering public goods. You know, things that are a public good. We need we need hospitals. We need schools. We need roads. Sometimes we we go through a period of building toll roads and think that's the answer. Maybe it's not. We sort it out as a community because we need these things. Information is no different. Yeah, it may be even more important. There's a fabulous guy I used to follow on Twitter. He's not on Twitter anymore. He's one of those who's decamped. Jeremy Latour, he's an associate professor at Lehigh University in the States, writes brilliantly about the media. And he summed it up, I thought, the best when he said, news essentially, if you think about it this way, 5,000 years ago, if you had a community of people and one of them went out into the bush and saw a bear, it's important that they come back and tell everybody there's a bear. Now, a lot of things happen to information after that, but that fundamentally is what news is. Be careful, there's a bear out there, or be careful, there's a lake over there, whatever it might be, and that's what we're talking about. And for as, don't forget, for as long as we've had men who cry bear, we've had boys who cry, who cry wolf. wolf. That's exactly <laughs> right, and, that, and then that's why Jeremy has a job, teaching everything that comes after him, which is what you're talking about. It has been fantastic. Where can people get your book, Alan? Because I Did actually will a buy a copy. <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten it. Uh, yeah, look, it's available in, uh, you know, it, you can order it online. It's not hard to find. 
Um, some links. Yeah, read my children's books as well. Start with those. Um, yeah, 10 Rules of Reporting, it's out there. Uh, I think uh, Scribner published it. Uh, and important for people who aren't in the media, I think, to read and understand I've, some of those things so they can spot what those in the media are getting right or wrong. It's that, a really, it's not an academic book. It's a short, simple, punchy book that's designed for people who want to be journalists or who simply need to understand how to understand the, the community, the media I feel like that's the bit we've moved into. It's been fabulous to have you. And they, they could also then target their criticism of you online more, you know, well, they might, more well. They might start uh, by getting my name right. I do teach people how to complain. <laughs> that's exactly right. Thank you Jim. Thank you Jimmy. Great to have you along as well, mate. Been it's good. Been a pleasure. Good and fun. that is episode. What episode did we say? One sixty four. Done and dusted. Next time we get Alan back, by the way, we'll talk about learning the banjo. <laughs> See, now I know nothing about no, that. I'm well out right. of my 164 Done and Dusted will be back next week to do it all again here on the Good Good Golf Podcast. Yeah.